Good morning, Alaska, and welcome to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. Living with addiction, chronic depression, severe anxiety, or any other mental illness can lead to a life of loneliness, despair, and isolation. But that is only one of the possible outcomes. History abounds with examples of people managing their mental health conditions and living lives filled with love, financial success, and deep human connection. Today's guest, Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine psychiatrist, Dr. Margaret Chisholm, believes that people living with mental illness can not only improve their well-being, but take actions that enable them to flourish and in their lives. Please stay with us for the next hour as we discuss her new book, From Survive to Thrive, which outlines an evidence-based approach to living well with mental illness. Welcome to the program, Dr. Chisholm. I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much, Prentice. All right, I want to take just a second to remind our listeners that uh, we value your participation. So if you have a question for Dr. Chisholm or a comment about today's topic, there are three ways to connect with us. If you're in the Anchorage area, our phone number is 550-8433. If you are listening outside of Anchorage, you can reach us toll-free at 1-888-353-5752. The last way is to email your questions to line one at alaskapublic.org. you got to spell out line one, L-I-N-E-O-N-E. We will do our best to get your questions and comments on the air. Uh, folks always uh, tend to call in the last uh, 10 or 15 minutes, and then we have a backlog. So if you want to get on, call in early, um, and we'll get you going. Okay, uh, Dr. Chisholm, I guess we uh, ought to start off, uh, talk a little bit about your background um, and what led you to sort of choose psychiatry and, and to Johns Hopkins? So I have an unusual background. It's a non-traditional background uh, for medicine. I, I, my undergraduate degree is in visual arts. I really had no idea that I was going to be a doctor. And then I read this incredible book by an art critic named John Berger. That's a photo essay uh, with another, with a photographer. Who, um, and it's about this country doctor in the UK and how he connected with his patients and really was part of this small community, got to know his patients intimately and, and really was a part of their lives. And that drew me uh, away from visual arts. I had actually already been accepted to graduate school in, at NYU in cinema studies and instead went to medical school and didn't think I was going to do psychiatry. I had had interactions with psychiatrists that were less than favorable. My brother was ill and um, in, in a psychiatric hospital for most of his teens. And so I really didn't have a positive view of psychiatry as a field and wasn't going into medicine to be a psychiatrist. But then when I, as all medical students do, I had a rotation on a psychiatric unit. I was on a unit with uh, patients with schizophrenia. I just loved the patient stories. I loved sitting and talking with them. And really, that was what I, uh, changed my mind about psychiatry was the patients. I really loved them and felt that what I could do for patients with psychiatric illness was more than I could do for, for other uh, patients, just by being kind, treating people with respect, being curious about their stories. So 
uh, I thought it brought out the best in me, and that's why I uh, decided to to become a psychiatrist. That's uh, that's quite a journey to psychiatry from cinematography. Um, that's <laughs> that's a big shift, um, and so much of this in your book, uh, "Survive to Thrive," is stories um, of people and of your patients and of yourself and of your brother, and it's a. Uh, it's a really good read and an easy read. I was, you know, halfway through it and I was like, how, like, I don't think I have enough time to finish this book. But then I realized it's just flying through because it's a really easy read. Um, but it also outlines uh, some, some really good, I guess, put some structure to what people can do in thinking about their own mental health. And so I'd like to start off maybe with the, the title of the book, Survive to Thrive. Um, and the word you use in describing the goal of this is to flourish. So can you talk a little bit about the title and the, is there a difference between thriving and flourishing? Because I think of them a lot, uh, I mean, as very similar. Yeah, I think they are very similar. We use the term flourishing uh, throughout the book. The, uh, it really was more a marketing decision actually by the press to, <laughs> okay. to change the title to include the word thrive. Um, just in terms of people being able to find the book. Um, it, there are a lot of books out there that have flourishing in the title. There are fewer that have thrive. Um, so I think it, it was more for practical reasons like that. But flourishing really is the, is the captures, I think, more the visual analogy of growth and like a flower yeah. is where the word comes from, uh, which I think is, is a really powerful metaphor. Uh, yeah, survive to flourish doesn't quite roll off the tongue um, <laughs> as smoothly. But yeah, the uh, imagery that you use in there of a garden or of a flower and things growing well and blooming and um, prospering, that was uh, was really nice. So that's sort of what the uh, w why you wrote the book. And can you talk about the structure and why it's set up? Um, and how it's designed to be used, because it's not just information that's being downloaded into your brain. It's got some practical things. And so why did you set it up as a sort of a manual or something that people can use? So, you know, in addition to being a psychiatrist, I'm also a teacher. And in teaching medical students, one of the most important tools, I think, is to uh, encourage them to reflect. And so we really wanted uh, the book to be... Uh, something that was interactive, that wasn't just me transmitting information, but that uh, could prompt reflection by the reader so that they could think about these ideas and how they're, they might be relevant to their own lives and, and how they could actually turn those reflections into actionable steps. So we wanted it to be interactive and have an impact at a personal level uh, for the reader. Yeah, and each section gives you a little opportunity um, with a picture of a mirror to self-reflect and to do to write some things down. And um, I did some of that as I was going along in the book, and um, and I noticed that you shared a lot of your own personal story. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how your like tell us a little bit about your story and and some of the stuff with your brother and how that sort of led you or directed you to to write this book? Yeah, so the, the book's dedicated to the memory of my brother. He passed away uh, from suicide 
about 10 years ago. And uh, it, that really did prompt me to, I had been thinking about writing a book like this for some time, but I was thinking that it was uh, really unfortunate that patients and family members didn't have um, an understanding of psychiatry that made psychiatry or seeing a psychiatrist or a mental health professional more approachable. So it was really an effort to destigmatize uh, psychiatry and demystify psychiatry that prompted me to actually write the book I'd been thinking about writing for some time. And that was one of the reasons I shared my own story uh, because certainly didn't seem if my goal was to demystify or destigmatize psychiatry right. not sharing that would wouldn't have seemed authentic and i you know my story isn't uh, i didn't have the most severe psychiatric illness um or for uh, you know not that i had postpartum depression not that postpartum depression can't be a very severe illness i was still able to work um and function occupationally throughout my illness so uh, it was uh, certainly not uh, the most severe form, but it was still something that was impacting my life significantly, and it impacts other people's lives as well. So I wanted to let people know that it, you know you don't have to wait until you're, you know, suicidal at death's door to to reach out for help. That it's it's okay to reach out for help for uh, any time when you're not your usual self. Yeah. Um... All right. So when you wrote this book, you wrote it from the sort of uh, the training and the background you got at, at Johns Hopkins. Can you um, talk about the perspectives approach and, and the training at Johns Hopkins and how that is or is not unique from most of the psychiatric training that's that is happening across the country? Yeah. So, you know, I've been at several institutions where I've worked uh, or trained um, and talk to a lot of psychiatrists all over the country and the world. And there are some places that use this approach because people have trained at Hopkins and then gone elsewhere to have educational roles or have practiced using this approach. But um, this is the only uh, residency training program where psychiatrists spend four years getting their training in how to be a psychiatrist this is the only residency program that uses this approach, not only for teaching, but also it's it, it woven into the fabric of our patient care. So uh, it's a it's really not um, a, something unique to Hopkins and what we do, but it's really the systematic way in which we teach it and think about it when we're seeing patients. So you know, basically, we think about every patient from four perspectives and do a rather uh, thorough, uh, time-consuming uh, initial evaluation to get an understanding of who a person is and what they've experienced in life uh, before we start thinking about any DSM, you know, Diagnostic Statistical Manual diagnoses. So we really want to put into um, context whatever is happening in the person's life now, we want to put that into a broader context of who they are as a person and what they've encountered in their lives. 
All right. Uh, for those of you who might be tuning in late, Johns Hopkins psychiatrist Dr. Mark, Margaret Chisholm is joining me today to discuss her new book, From Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness. If you have a question for Dr. Chisholm or a comment about today's topic, you can reach us in three ways. Our local number is 550-8433, toll-free, 1-888-353-5752, and our email is line1 at alaskapublic.org. We do have a, uh, a caller who listened to my intro and decided to call in early. So um, we have Thomas in Palmer. Uh, you have something for us today, Thomas. Go ahead. Hi. I, well, I haven't read the book, so I don't know what her cures are. But, <laughs> uh, I just want to talk about how... Uh, my, my recovery, uh, as it were, and, uh, you know, there's addiction in all kinds of products. And, as we know, uh, then you try cigarettes and alcohol and, and go from there. And, I, uh, I guess I have experienced all that. And I guess what my thought is healthy addictions, uh, turn those bad addictions into healthy addictions. And my healthy addiction right now is my solar panels and, and that project, and I'll just uh, look at my money differently than I used to, as opposed to something to spend. It's I uh, I want to invest my money, and and uh, not not in the liquor store uh, or, or the guy at the corner, uh, but in myself. And uh, so I switched to a better addiction. I'm still addicted to everything else. It's just I uh, don't have money for that because I'm focused on the addiction that I want to be focused on, which is my solar panels. And so it's helped me uh, clean up my act a lot. Thomas, thank you for sharing that. I love that um, that story because it really um, helps me. Uh, I'm addiction medicine certified, actually, so I'm very interested in addiction. Um, but it really helps me uh, explain how we think about addiction because, you know, uh, addiction is a, a cycle, as I'm sure you've experienced, where you make a choice to use a drug or alcohol or cigarettes, you make a choice, and then you are conditioned. You know, it makes you feel relaxed or euphoric or whatever positive thing comes from that. And if you try to quit and you're dependent, you may go into withdrawal. And so then that makes you want to use to avoid the withdrawal. So this conditioned learning feeds into increased drive and craving, which narrows your ability to choose. And this cycle develops. And the only, you know, there's several ways out of the cycle. And one way you identified, which is finding something else to compete with that uh, reward that you're getting from the drugs or alcohol. So, you know, it's hard to not have pleasure in your life. And so you have to find something else that's going to give you equal, if not more pleasure than the drugs or alcohol to break that cycle. And so you did what, you know, I recommend that people do is find uh, something that's a you know, that will compete, a positive reinforcer, we say, that will compete with that reward that the drug or alcohol use uh, brings. And so you've identified that with your solar pa panel hobby. 
Other people might find a, a, a different kind of job that really uh, gives them pleasure or, uh, or relationships in, with other people or in the community that bring them pleasure, but you have to have something else to substitute for that addiction. Absolutely. Yeah, Thomas, thank you. Uh, thank you for the call and for sharing your story and a little bit about what you've done to sort of overcome addiction, because addiction is is I mean, people use in order to fill some sort of void. Right. And if you take away whatever that is that that you're filling that void with being a substance or a behavior, um, it's important to find something else to fill that space. Um, and to connect with. A lot of that is about connections. Um, all right, so the perspectives approach. Can you, uh, I want to get into the HIDE acronym because I like that so much. And can you talk about how that, you use that to explain the four perspectives? Because the four perspectives can be a little bit uh, confusing, but HIDE really kind of makes it easy to understand. Yeah, I think that that's a, I'm glad you like that. I, I find it Good to have these mnemonics like that. So HIDE, H-I-D-E, is a way to remember what the four perspectives are about. So it, the question we ask when patients come to us with problems um, is, you know, how much of this problem can be explained as something that the person has, like a disease that comes upon you unbidden, like schizophrenia or manic depressive illness. So that's the H, has. How much of what the you're experiencing or the person is experiencing can be explained by uh, who that person is. That's the I. And by is, we mean what your personality is like, your, um, your temperament, your cognitive capability. So that's the I is. How much of this person's problem can be explained by something that they're doing? Uh, that's the behavior perspective. That means, let's say, restricting food intake or uh, using drugs or alcohol. So that's the D, doing. And or how much of what this person is bringing, these problems, how much of this can be explained by something that this person has encountered in their life? And that's the E for the life story perspective. So is it something that somebody has? Is it growing out of who, who, they, who the person is? Is it because of something they're doing or is it because of something they've encountered? And often it's a combination of, of these explanations that help us begin to develop a treatment plan for the person. Yeah, because so much of, I mean, it's impossible to pinpoint one of those. So much of it is, how our personalities and our temperaments interact with the environment that we grow up in. I mean, we, the nature versus nurture debate, um, I think, has been sort of resolved that, there, that, that the environment sort of impacts and creates or sort of impacts your nurture. Um, so that's a, it's a really good point to remember that it's not just one of those things, but a combination. Um, and I think uh, that's what sort of a good assessment and a thorough assessment really does is talks. And we're going to get into a little bit about temperament um, and personalities. And um, I love the uh, 
the explanation of those in your book. So we'll do that uh, after we come back from our first break. So for those of you who might be tuning in late, Johns Hopkins psychiatrist Dr. Margaret Chisholm is joining me today to discuss her new book, From Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness. If you have a question for Dr. Chisholm or a comment about today's topic, please give us a call or send us an email. Our Anchorage number is 550-8433. Outside of Anchorage, you can reach us toll-free at 1-888-353-5752. The last way to get your question is to email us at line one at alaskapublic.org. After this short, short break, we'll continue our conversation about living well with and despite mental illness. I'm Prentice Pemberton. You're listening to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. Line One, your health connection comes to you from Alaska Public Media and is made possible with support from Providence Imaging Center, providing women with 3D mammography centered around comprehensive diagnostic care. Providence Imaging Center, honoring Breast Cancer Awareness Month. The Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. If you're just joining us, Johns Hopkins psychiatrist Dr. Margaret Chisholm is with us to discuss her new book, From Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness. If you have a question for Dr. Chisholm or a comment for us today, please give us a call. Our Anchorage phone number is 550-8433. Toll free, we can be reached at 1-888-353-5752 and our email is line1 at alaskapublic.org. Okay, we uh, we had a caller, but they're, they seem to be gone now. So we will continue on here. Um, all right, so let's talk about the Diagnostical and Statistical Manual, which is like this humongous thing that... Um, is sort of the bane of my existence trying to categorize people into these, um, you know, subunits of, of mental illness and describe them and, you know, because people don't really fit into that. So what's it used for and, and how is it overused or uh, can work as sort of a, a detriment to, to what we're trying to do as, as helping professionals? That's a great question. So, it, you know, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, was really originally developed as a research tool. And it was a way, so if somebody, a researcher in, say, England was studying people with schizophrenia, they made, they made a list of signs and symptoms of schizophrenia. And so if somebody in the U.S., was also studying schizophrenia, they could say, oh, we're studying these people with these same signs and symptoms. So it was really made so that there could be reliability uh, across uh, research groups studying a a particular cluster of signs and symptoms. 
It was also developed in that way in a, using an atheoretical approach, meaning it wasn't talking about the origins of these uh, signs or symptoms. It, so it kind of got away from that split that was happening at the time between psychoanalysts and biological psychiatrists. So it was just kind of saying what the signs and symptoms was. It was purely on a surface level, uh, much like a field guide to birds is just saying, you know, there's these colors, there's these right. wing types, et cetera. So it was just on a surface level and it wasn't talking about the origin of the problems. So the, the DSM was used as a research tool, but it was also became then used for billing purposes. Yes. Um, clinically. And the unfortunate effect is because it's organized in the signs and symptoms surface level categories, even though it doesn't say anything about the origin of these signs or symptoms, it implies, because it uses this categorical way of classifying, it implies that these are diseases for the most part. So I think that's one thing. It just reduces people to signs and symptoms. It doesn't talk about the origin, and it implies that these are diseases. They take on sort of a bigger life of their own. As you know, they're very lots of there's lots of overlap between these different uh, signs and symptoms in these diagnostic categories. And unfortunately, now there's not even good uh, reliability in terms of the some of these diagnoses. For instance, major depression when they did the field trials for the fifth version of the DSM had really low reliability. One person might see the same signs and symptoms listed in the DSM and call it major depression. Somebody else might call it something else. So it's not really, um, never was designed to be a clinical tool. It has been co-opted as a clinical tool and it really just reduces people to these, these very superficial slivers of very nonspecific diagnoses. So I don't find it particularly useful at all. Um, yeah, I don't find it useful at all either. It, it seems um, uh, sort of, it's just a, a snapshot um, of, of symptoms that we're supposed to then label and send off to insurance company. And I have a lot of parents that call me and, you know, they say, well, he has ADD and ODD. And, um, you know, my, my response is, is that those are, those are pretty normal things for teenagers. It's some oppositionality and some distractibility. And how do we work with that child and their family to improve those things and come up with strategies? So I try to stay away from diagnosing, but the insurance companies really encourage us to get that diagnosis on the first meeting. And um, so there's a lot of, and I also tell people, you go to five different clinicians, you'll get five different diagnoses often. Um, some sort of social anxiety or anxiety disorder, NOS. I mean, there's all these labels that just like, it just categorize people into these chunks and it, it bothers me a lot. So um, yeah, it is a necessary thing, but as, as you said, I don't think it's something that's particularly helpful. Um, how does it contribute to a, really a misdiagnosis if, uh, if clinicians sort of rely on that too much? And if there's clinicians out there listening, what should they like be careful of? Well, I mean, the problem is you can be so biased, uh, as you say, one person could say, this is 
ODD, one person could say this is bipolar disorder, another person could say it was a personality disorder. Um, there's so much overlap in the signs and symptoms, and it's just such so cross-sectional, as you say, it's yeah. just a snapshot. So, you know, what I, I really think the the secret to for whether you're a patient or a clinician, uh, both I would think would want to uh, have an appropriate understanding of a patient's problem and an, you know, an idea about the best way to treat that problem. And I think there's no shortcuts. I mean, I think you need to take a thorough, detailed history. Um, and my histories would include getting information from somebody else other than the patient. Uh, you know, I usually spend a, at least an hour with the patient, but I bring a family member or a friend or uh, loved one in to the visit as well to kind of get their perspective because some, sometimes some of these illnesses will distort one's own thinking about not only their history but what they're experiencing right now. So I think it's always good to have uh, some additional source of information uh, before uh, you know hanging your hat on a particular approach to understanding of the illness or approach to treatment. I mean, I always say there's two kinds of people, the diagnosed and the undiagnosed, and uh, the diagnosed have just happened to gone to a therapist, right? Like, we all have something. There's nobody that gets through life without some kind of adjustment disorder, um, getting married, getting divorced, the death of, of somebody close to you. I mean, there's all sorts of, of things that create uh, situations in, in us as humans being human. Um, we struggle with those things. So... Um, with that being said, can you talk more about the the life story perspective and why, what that means, um, and how that is sort of uh, developed and created by people? Yeah. So, like you say, you know, everybody, uh, you know, has something that happens in their life. Everybody has a life story. Everybody has a personality, for that matter. And you know, things uh, often don't go as planned, you know, we run into bumps along the way in our life and depending on our personality and how and what those bumps are like can have different outcomes. So the life story is really the most personal um, of the four perspectives. This is thinking about somebody's problem as originating or emerging from uh, something that has happened in the course of their life that has been more challenging to deal with. And it's really looking at how the person is dealing with that and what story that they're telling themselves about this event that they've encountered. So one example is grief. Um, you know, people will uh, obviously have a reaction to the loss of a loved one. And that is, um, you know, always a challenge to deal with, uh, regardless of who you are. Some people, it might be more of a challenge. Some people, it might be less of a challenge, depending on their personality and other things about that relationship. But nevertheless, it's something that one encounters in one's life. And usually, you have a story that goes along with that. You know, you could say, I wish I could have done more. I should have done more to prevent uh, this person from dying prematurely. You could say that you know, maybe um, you were being punished. This death was some either a punishment on their part or a punishment 
um, uh, 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 of you. Um, so there are many stories we tell ourselves. We are, are always trying to make meaning <laughs> out of uh, our experiences. And so sometimes those stories we tell ourselves can be adaptive and other times they can be stories that um, hold us back from getting on with our lives. And so that's when somebody comes to us with a problem that's primarily um, best understood as emerging from uh, this something that they've encountered, best understood from the life story perspective, we'll want to understand how they're making meaning of this experience. And if there's a way to help them make meaning in a, in a way that helps them cope rather than prevents them from coping. That's the story that we're going to rewrite collaboratively together. Yeah. In um, my experience, so often people tell me their life story because that's part of, you know, my practice is to, is to have people tell me their life story. And, and then in that process, I find all these sort of distorted beliefs that they have carried from childhood about their responsibility or things being their fault or that they're no good or not worthy of love. And um, and those things were perhaps adaptive at one point in childhood because many of the ways that we cope for survival are adaptive. But then as we move into adulthood, they become maladaptive is how I describe that. And so then part of it and what I love this part about your book is rewriting that life story and um, rewriting that personal narrative that you have created so many, and I call them automatic you know, thoughts because we have this, this tape that's playing in our head over and over and it's so ingrained um, deeply in our psyche that we don't even know we're doing it most of the time. And so how do people change that personal narrative well, really, I think it's, you know, people change when it's more uncomfortable to remain the same. And so I think first having people be able to express their feelings, be aware of their feelings, express their feelings, and notice how it's that story that's holding them back. So it may, that may take quite some time, uh, you know, for people to be able to, to wrap their heads around their role in in holding themselves back i mean oftentimes you know people have these as you say these are have been very adaptive stories this has worked for them in the past having this story and helping people understand how that story that's in their control is no longer working for them and that they have the power to change the story is you know really foundational and then you know really listening and taking uh, kernels of what someone tells me, you know, I can then suggest that they're, they themselves are suggesting this other way of looking at things. You know, maybe somebody has been victimized and, you know, by saying that they were a victim, which could be very true, that that somehow was helpful for them when they were younger. But now perhaps that story that of being a victim is playing out in other aspects of their life where it's no longer helpful. So somebody might be able to entertain the idea, they might come up with it themselves, that maybe there's another way of looking at this. Maybe they're, they're a survivor 
Um, and they could survive that. They can survive these other things that life's throwing at them. So again, it's a very collaborative approach. Um, I, I don't ever impose a story on someone. I'm always tentative about stories that I might be suggesting or might right. be reflecting back to them. But people generally are, are looking for a way to feel better and are open to hearing these other um, alternative ways of, of interacting with the world. I have a, a really good uh, example of, of something that was developed that was adaptive once and then became maladaptive. I worked with a, a person who was very, very small and got picked on a lot when they were little. And then as they hit middle school, all of a sudden this person became very large and muscular and grew and, and then and then acted out against the people who targeted them and and became this angry, aggressive person because it was very protective, right? And then as an adult, they realized that everybody just was afraid of them and they didn't want that anymore. And so that adaptive thing that was very protective, he had to figure out new ways of attaining power and, and through assertiveness and relearn all of that. And that's... Um, it was a, a difficult journey to to change that automatic response, right, to any perceived threat. And so to really adjust that from aggression to assertiveness was a, a time-consuming effort, but um, one that can be done to sort of rewrite uh, your personal narrative that I'm not in danger anymore and I'm capable of protecting myself um, in different yeah. ways. So I think that's uh, kind of what you're talking about. So... Um, I guess we want to. I want to get into temperament, but we only have a couple minutes here before our net, next break. But can you talk about personalities and how they are um, created, or how do we how do we develop our personality? What does that mean? <laughs> I'm not sure. I know how we develop <laughs> our personality, but I I will say that as you've alluded to, there's a combination of uh, nature and nurture at work. Uh, but you know, people do by the time they're adults have personalities that are fairly set. Um, and we don't use at Hopkins, we don't use the DSM or what used to be the access to personality disorders, the you know, the borderline, the narcissistic, the antisocial, the avoidant. We don't use those because there's not really good even reliability um, for those. That's why they had the clusters, cluster A, B, and C in the old DSM. So because there's no reliability um, and there's no gold standard validity uh, for any, any, almost any psychiatric illness, uh, we just call that those personality disorder diagnoses sophisticated name calling uh, because they don't have much evidence <laughs> right. behind them. And instead, we use this five-factor uh, NEO-PI personality index, neuroticism, extroversion, openness, agreeableness, and conscientiousness. These uh, big five affective temperament uh, traits, I guess you can say, um, that everybody is somewhere on, say, the introversion, extroversion uh, dimension. And by using those, it really destigmatizes the idea that there's a good personality, a bad personality. It you know gets around this good personality, bad personality idea and says every personality has potential strengths and potential vulnerabilities depending on what situation you're in. 
And so that's the that's our approach to thinking about personality is helping somebody understand where they are on these dimensions of temperament and how that can work for them in some circumstances and might not be working for them in other circumstances. That's a that's a great point. I think I've never I don't know that I've ever given an access to uh, diagnosis to anybody because I, I kind of think think the same way that it's um, it's something that that people can change if they're motivated to do and people say oh borderlines no they're you know stuck or narcissist um, and you know some some uh, some people are more difficult to change or they have more difficult time changing than others but um, that whole I like sophisticated name calling. That's good. So if you are, uh, we're at our 40 minute break, so we're going to go ahead and take a quick one. If you're just tuning in today, Johns Hopkins psychiatrist, Dr. Margaret Chisholm is joining us for a discussion about her new book, From Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness. After this short break, we'll continue with more of our conversation about living well with mental illness. I'm Prentice Pemberton, and you're listening to Line One, Your Health Connection on Alaska Public Media. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone is excited for the 2021-2022 school year. It's important to prepare for an active year ahead, whether you play competitive sports or just enjoy being active. It's important to make your overall health a priority. So get your COVID-19 vaccine, stay active and involved, check in with friends and family, and bounce back from COVID together and make it a great year. This message sponsored by the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Johns Hopkins psychiatrist, Dr. Margaret Chisholm. We are discussing her new book, From Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness. If you have a question for Dr. Chisholm or a comment about today's topic, please give us a call or send us an email. We had a, a caller who called in and made a great point that the, the phone numbers now require a 907. We have to dial them all, is my understanding now. So in Anchorage, you can reach us at 907-550-8433, or you can call us toll-free at 1-888-353-5752. Um, and the last way is to get your uh, send your questions to us at line one at alaskapublic.org. Okay, well, um, I'm uh, I do want to take just a second. I just am day 13 post COVID, and I always wondered what they were talking about when they said like brain fog or like um, it's a this is a really interesting experience. My first radio show, like post COVID, obviously, and um. It's my train of thought is kind of um, jumbled a little bit. So it's interesting for anybody out there who talks about uh, post-COVID brain fog. I'm uh, I'm living through it right now. So this is a, an interesting experience for me. That's just a little side note. Um, all right. So before uh, we were talking about personalities, you talked. You mentioned the Big Five. Can we? T you talk a little bit about the Big Five and. Um, and the test, I, I took it, and I am a, an agreeable um, 
intro or extrovert who uh, is not very high on the conscientious scale, which um, my wife would agree with, uh, and my children. So, uh, can you talk about those and why it's important? I mean, what does it mean to to understand that, and why is it important if we're going to engage in the change process? Yeah. So I, I do want to go back to something you had said before the break, which was this um, idea that you can't change a person that that you can change a personality. I think you you can't change your affective temperament, meaning the way that the feelings that come up in a particular situation. So we think of temperament, affective temperament, as you have a potential, depending on where you are in one of those dimensions, and then you meet a provocation, something that you know is something you encounter, and you have a natural feeling that comes up that's based on your temperament. So if you are an introvert, you might get anxious, feel anxious in a certain social situation. And that's gonna be the natural feeling. But what you have control over is how you respond to that feeling in terms of your thinking and your behavior. So if you're introverted like I am, and you're at a party and you say something uh, that you regret saying, you know, you'll feel, oh, you know, I feel really ashamed uh, um, and I'm worried that I'm going to say something again that's that stupid. And that's going to be my natural feeling. But I can change that thought and I can say, oh, that was nothing. They probably didn't even notice. Um, You know, it's, you know, I'm fine. This person isn't judging me or whatever. And I don't have to shrink back into the wall and never say anything again. I can, you know, keep talking and interacting with people. So I might not have a, you know, my initial feeling when I put my foot in my mouth might be, um, you know, one of shame or anxiety or whatever, but I can, I can think differently and I can act differently so that it doesn't interfere with my life. So that's sort of the idea of the, uh, these dimensions, these affective temperament dimensions, this aspect of your personality is that you are who you are and you're going to feel certain ways, but you can um, change the way you respond to those feelings, either your thoughts or your actions. So the big five, neuroticism, extroversion, um, uh, openness, agreeableness, and conscientiousness, those are the five factors that seem to be everybody's someplace on one of those dimensions. So for neuroticism, that's really strength of feelings. Um, some people feel things really strongly. They have, as we say, two scoops of feelings. Other people feel things very weakly, uh, which can be good in certain situations, bad in other situations. It's great to be feel things really strongly and get worried about things if it's something you should really get worried about, like uh, you know, a lump in your breast or something like that. Right. You know, if you're really low on neuroticism, um, you're not feeling things strongly. You might not worry enough about uh, something that you detect, uh, you know, in your body, and you might not seek help. So again, it's not a good or bad personality to have being highly neurotic or very low on neuroticism. It depends on the situation. In some situations, uh, you know, you'll need to think and respond differently um, in order to to be healthy. Yeah, sometimes it will be of great benefit um, to be highly neurotic and other times. But 
sometimes those things can go sort of like a wildfire and kind of create its own energy and get out of whack. And is that, um, I guess, is that what a mental illness is? If we take um, our automatic thoughts, uh, that's what I call these sort of first responses are automatic, like flare up in fear or anger. And then, uh, you know, I really work with people on what's an alternative narrative. What's an alternative thing that you can tell yourself? Um, so when does it go from, I mean, it seems like balance is really important in, in any of these sort of temperaments and sort of moving more towards the middle is, is a good thing. Well, I don't think you're going to move more towards the middle in terms of your natural temperament, but I think you can just respond differently. So I do think understanding your temperament is the first step. And if you're on the extremes of temperament, so these are all distributed on a sort of a bell-shaped curve, and right. people can be right in the middle where most people are in terms of extroversion, introversion, or people can be one standard deviation, two standard deviations from the norm from the middle and you know people are more vulnerable to getting into trouble with their feelings when they're more on the extremes yeah so so first of all is just understanding where you are and if you're on the extremes you're gonna that's a pretty good reason why you're having so many problems is because you know almost anything life throws at you you're gonna have overly strong or overly weak reaction um so understanding where you are, and again, you're not going to, no extrovert, unless they're right on the cusp, no extrovert is going to become an introvert. Nobody who's highly neurotic is going to become highly unneurotic. This is just who you are, accepting that and taking responsibility for think, for what you do have control over, which is your thoughts and your actions is key. All right. Now I want to get into, we're running out of time here, but I want to get into the four pathways that lead to happiness and health. Like what are those categories? Um, and, and how can people work to, uh, engage in changing that? Yeah. So this is a really important, um, idea, I think, which is that there's mental health, um, and mental health is certainly a goal that we all have, but mental, you don't necessarily have to be, have no signs or symptoms of mental illness. You don't have to be perfectly mentally healthy to lead a good life. And in fact, some of our experiences when we um, have struggled with mental illness can actually help us go on to lead even fuller lives than we would have if we hadn't experienced this. I know this is true of people with addiction who get into AA and do so much uh, work on themselves that they end up being better people than they were before they even had the addiction. Right. Um, so, um, so thinking about, I, as I said, I, I worked a lot with people with addiction for 10 years. I worked at the center for addiction and pregnancy, and I found it was really relatively easy, um, uh, for, to help women stop using drugs. They were mainly using heroin during their pregnancy. There were a lot of internal motivations as well as external motivations, like not wanting to have their children taken away by protective services and things like that, that helped them not use during pregnancy. But then once somebody gets over that um, kind of a, that motivation, that subsides, they deliver, it was, it's really hard to keep somebody well or help somebody uh, sustain their recovery. And one of the reasons is because 
they haven't really nourished these pathways to flourishing. So there's this model that's been developed at Harvard for flourishing, and the domains of flourishing are many. They're obvious to most of us, happiness and life satisfaction, mental and physical health, uh, meaning and purpose, character and virtue, close social relationships. These are This is what a good life looks like, having all those things. But there's actually evidence about how you can get there. And the there are four pathways to flourishing that have been identified, and uh, they are family, work, education, and community, specifically religious community, in part because that's the information they have on people in these scientific databases. Um, but other types of communities uh, are like AA and NA are, are equally uh, valuable. But so when somebody is uh, suffering from addiction um, and we want them to uh, sustain their recovery, we look at those pathways of flourishing and think, yeah, they've burned a lot of bridges with their family. They don't have those supports, whether because of you know the addiction uh, pushing them to lie or steal or um, whatnot. They burn bridges with their family. So one important part of recovery is going to be slowly regaining trust of their family and being able to um, have those supportive relationships again. The uh, other pathway is uh, education. That's another pathway to flourishing. So, you know, it's important if somebody has, um, you know, needs to get their GED, they want to go back to school to support them and doing that, that will bring them a great sense of meaning and purpose and will actually be, again, this other, this replacement for the drugs in terms of things that are bringing pleasure and, and, uh, and positivity. There's work, obviously, a lot of meaning and purpose comes from work, people depend on you, you have uh, relationships that develop at work. So work is another pathway of flourishing that we'd wanna strengthen that would help someone's recovery from addiction or any other uh, mental illness. And then fourth is community, as I've talked about, uh, re-engaging with one's faith community. If you have been a person of faith, uh, connecting with new communities around hobbies, like solar panels, as one of the callers right. said, or um, through NA or AA. These are all going to, these pathways are ones that you need to strengthen in order to have a flourishing life, in order to lead a good life. And you can do that even in the presence of signs and symptoms of mental illness. It's um, so all you need to change is everything, right? Like, I mean, that's the statement in addiction, but you can't chew, you can't eat this whole elephant in one sitting. Um, it's important then to pick one thing, and it might be work, it might be reconnecting with family, as you mentioned, um, community. Uh, I had someone who got into rock climbing and that really became their community and, and just immersed themselves in that whole world and, and developed friendships and connections. Um, so it's important to not try to bite off too much at once, right? Yeah. So just like when we're thinking about, you know, prioritizing somebody's problems in treatment, you know, should we treat the disease first? Should we work on the personality aspects or should we process the meaning of things? You know, you prioritize that. Uh, likewise, you prioritize these pathways. You know, it may be hard to rebuild bridges with your family when, um, you know, you are um, you're 
there hasn't been enough time to rebuild trust. So you might want to work with a community like AA or NA or your faith community that might be more open uh, to uh, working with you. And as you have more days, weeks, months, years of abstinence or sobriety, uh, your family may be uh, more inclined to re-engage with you. So yeah, you have to kind of uh, stratify these things. It might be very important to go back to school, for instance, before getting a job that is meaningful, or you might really need to get a job right. in order to go back to school. It really varies uh, and is very individualized in terms of, of st strategy as to what to prioritize. And uh, is that why it's important to, you know, if you're working with a mental health professional or, or to have somebody as a sounding board um, to help you sort of prioritize some of these things, what's the biggest thing to tackle? Um, yeah, I think it's really helpful to have somebody's outside perspective um, who can, you know, it's when you're in the middle of life, it's right. very chaotic and, and our problems are chaotic and our lives are complex. And I think having somebody that can kind of think about things in a more detached way uh, with some distance to say, okay, and to break it down into, okay, let's look at family, let's look at work, let's look at education, Let's look at community What and think about what your goals are in each of them. Um, I think it's good to talk about that, to get those that framework out on the table, to think about your goals within each framework and to think about what makes sense in terms of what you're going to be most successful at first, because you want to be successful, right? You don't want to bite off more than you can chew or choose the most difficult thing uh, to address first when you want to you want to have success you've already had enough failure in your life if you're like most of us so yeah there's a, a great book called do one thing different and it's the premise of that is that you pick one thing and you really focus on that and as that flourishes that one area grows then it sort of leads to to other things all right we are up against uh the end of our show so i'd like for um maybe just define or give us some take-home thoughts um, and why people would want to pick up this book. Well, I mean, my take-home thoughts are that people are complex and I think everybody in treatment deserves to have their story heard, um, deserves to be listened to. And I think that thinking about what you need as a patient or somebody who is seeking uh, care from a professional, thinking about what you need and really um, asking for what you need from your healthcare professional will help right. you get better. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, my thanks to Line 1 producer Adeline Baxter and to our audio engineer Tobin Shelby. For all of us at Line 1, thanks for taking the time to join us today on Line 1. I'm Prentice Pemberton. Have a great day, Alaska. Line One is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the host and participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Learn more about Line One and listen online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.